we've titled this series Q&A because what I asked you to do uh, earlier on was to submit some questions, things that, some questions that you have had as you've read your Bible, as, you, as you've uh, studied, as you've been in your life groups and so forth, some things that maybe have been kind of mulling uh, in your mind. And uh, we've had some great questions. This one this morning kind of centers on this, that salvation is it by works or by faith? And two questions prompted me to, uh, to create this message for today. And here's the first one. Do you think praying the sinner's prayer saves you? Sinner's prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the person added, I read Matthew 13, 1 through 9 recently. And it made me think how we as evangelicals commonly preach this prayer, but it seems sometimes it falls short. But could Matthew 13, 1 through 9 shed some light on it? Well, well, here's Matthew 13, 1 through 9. It's the parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, uh, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. A little later in that same chapter, Jesus explained the parable to his disciples. And beginning of verse 18, here's, here's what Jesus said. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So the question is, do we just pray a prayer? Or does something actually take root in the soil of our hearts and lives that grows up and actually bears fruit? I think that's what this person was asking. And the issue of producing fruit is a large one in the New Testament. Here's the other question. One of the questions I've been wrestling with is how we reconcile Matthew 7.21, 
where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. With Romans 10, 9 and 10, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. On the surface, these verses seem to conflict. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you can call me Lord. You can call me all that all you like. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is the one who enters the kingdom. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. So on the one hand, there's a sense of the Lordship of Christ and, and obedience to him. On the other hand is this issue of simple belief, simple faith, believing, confessing, and being saved. So I think that those questions, as I've been mulling them, kind of center on this question of salvation. Is it by works or is it by faith alone? We teach that, don't we? But we struggle with the question. It's a, it's a great question, a classic question, because all of us struggle with the realization that we don't measure up that we will never measure up, that we repeatedly offend God by sinful thoughts and attitudes and words and actions. And, and, and each of us deals with that nagging, niggling thought that, that we should maybe be doing something to earn our way into the kingdom of God. Am I alone in that? Any of you ever wrestle with that? Come on, you cowards. Anybody wrestle with that? The rest of you are not telling the truth. And both those thoughts are misplaced, aren't they? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is the classic New Testament passage that speaks to this question. In fact, someone has referred to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as Romans in miniature. And I'd like to simply walk through it with you this morning and see how it answers our question. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture this morning together aloud. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is God's word, and you may be seated. 
Remember, our question is salvation, is it by works or by grace? And, and uh, the, I think the struggle for all of us in relation to this question is that, that nagging thought that um, we don't measure up, that somehow we keep messing up, we keep repeating the same sins. And, and then the question is, am I enough for God? Have I done enough for God? Am I, is he pleased with me? Or I, am I somehow going to fall from grace? So I want you to just walk with me through this passage. And we're just going to take it slowly, a little bit at a time as we move through this. But in verses one through three, and by the way, if you have a program, inside that program is an insert on which you can take notes. And I hope that you'll open a Bible um, if you have one or, or turn it on, whatever is your preference, um, and, and just follow along because we're going to be looking at several different passages of scripture. Scripture, But again, in, in verses one through three, Paul says, you were dead. You were, past tense, dead. Um, again, let me, let me just read this for you, uh, verses one through three, by, so that we can just repeat it again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When Paul told the Ephesian believers that they were once dead in their trespasses and sins, he wasn't just talking about physical death, was he? Uh, Or the sinner's ultimate fate at the judgment of of eternal death, eternal separation from God. But he wasn't just talking figuratively either. He was referring to a very real and present death. And what he's talking about is a spiritual death in which the most vital part of a person's being, their spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, which is the capacity to engage in a relationship with God. I love that new song we sang, Evan, this morning. Jesus Christ is our living hope, but but apart from a relationship with him, we are the walking dead. And the reason that we are the walking dead apart from God Paul said, is the trespasses and sins in which we walked. And that word trespasses implies moral lapses. The, and, and the word sins means missing the mark, failing to meet God's perfect standard. But I don't think Paul was pushing at this moment for a precise definition of the word. I mean, of those words. I mean, we could dismantle them. We could analyze them. But I think on the contrary, Paul was simply giving name to both the cause and the evidence of our spiritual death. Our trespasses and sins led to our death. And our trespasses and sins, our continued trespasses and sins, gave evidence to that spiritual death. So apart from... Paul says, a relationship with God, we were spiritually dead. By the way, I mentioned last week that um, 
you don't have to pray. Remember that? You don't have to pray about the things that, that God has already made clear in his word. You don't, you don't have to pray and wonder if you should obey those or, 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 or submit yourself to those. And one of those that I said is you don't have to pray about whether you should marry an unbeliever. The Bible says no. This is one of the reasons that if your spirit is alive and you're entering into a, 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 a one flesh union with someone whose spirit is dead, you will never experience the depth of intimacy that God intends for the marriage relationship. I'm, am I meddling now? But Paul says some other things were true of us as well. For one, he says that we were enslaved. We were enslaved. Pointing to uh, the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Paul's saying that they defined and controlled our lifestyle. Following the course of this world. Some people think of their choice to engage in sinful behavior as freedom. I mean, they'll, 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 they'll go out in the streets and protest, won't they? I mean, stridently. They'll get violent about their freedom of choice, freedom to do what they want to do, anytime they want to do it, with whom they want to do it. And if you mess with that, they'll say, you're taking away my freedom. But if you can't do anything but sin, <laughs> you're, you're really not free, are you? If behind spiritual death lies sin, then, then what lies behind the sin that enslaved us? And, and Paul points out three influences here. He says, first of all, that we were following the course of this world. And that expression, the course of this world, represents the entire value system of humanity that sets itself against the rule of God. It's the system that Paul warned the Roman believers about when he wrote, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We saw that again last week. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Second, he says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, a clear reference to Satan. So, we're being controlled by the world. We're, we're following Satan. Third, he says that we were living in the passions of our flesh. And here Paul is talking about our physical bodies to be sure, but most basically in Paul's parlance and in, in his kind of uh, lexicon, flesh meant our fallen self-centeredness with its entirely self-serving orientation with regard to both body and mind. So before Christ set us free, Paul wants us to understand we were, in fact, enslaved outside the world system. Or outside was the world system. Inside was the flesh, our, our twisted, self-centered, fallen nature. And beyond that, and working through both of those things like a puppet master, was Satan himself the ruler of the kingdom of darkness who held us in captivity. You remember that Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, he, has, he, that is Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And then Paul adds one final statement about our past lives. He, he says that we were condemned. 
in Romans 5, 12 to 14, I'm not going to read it, but just make a note if you'd like. Paul pointed out that we are sinners both by nature, on the one hand, being descended from Adam, being a part of Adam's family, Adam's race, and we are sinners also by personal choice. And to the Ephesians, Paul writes, we were by nature then children of wrath like the rest of mankind, meaning that we were no different than the rest of the mass of humanity. We were objects of God's wrath. We were enemies of God in rebellion against him and marked, marked for judgment. In verses four, that's the bad news, by the way. And it's grim, isn't it? Ready for some good news? Verses four through seven, God made us alive. But God made us alive. And those two words, but God, may be the two most important words in all of the Bible, if not all of the world and all of history. I heard someone once say that this is one of the big buts of the Bible. I didn't, I didn't, I'm probably not going to repeat that, but I heard him say it. Notice where Paul goes with it. He said in verses 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, in these four verses, verses four through seven, against the backdrop of the our sin-soaked, self-centered, self-serving nature, Paul describes the nature of God. In verse four, he is rich in mercy and great in his love for us. Isn't that good news? In verses five and seven, he is rich in grace. And then in verse seven, he is kind. You get the sense in reading this that that Paul as he's writing this, was simply astonished at what God did for us in our desperate condition. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says, God acted to reverse our spiritual condition and give us new life together with Christ. He wrote similarly to the Roman Christians and Chapter 5 of Romans, verses 6, 8, and 10. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that that word weak means helpless. It means that, that there was nothing that we could do to solve our predicament. The predicament of our sin and our separation from God. That, the, that we were on the highway to hell and there was no way we were going to get off that road. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were hostile toward God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
In verse 5, Paul then inserts the statement, by grace you have been saved. It shows up twice in this, in this larger passage. By grace you have been saved. And then here in verses 4 to 7, Paul is giving us a kind of a three-point outline under that heading of what God did for us and, and therefore what it means to be saved. Pay attention to a couple of things in this brief passage. First, Paul's repeated use of that phrase, with Christ. He's going to use it several times in verses 5 and 6. And, and then secondly, pay attention to, the, to his use of the past tense with regard to God's actions on our behalf. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, so first of all, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We were dead. We were dead. But he made us alive when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was an act of power. The Bible uses that word dynamis from which we get our word dynamite. The, the, Christ was raised by the power of God, the, the word says, but when God made us alive with Christ, it was an act not only of power, but it was an act of grace. An act of grace because we were helpless, because we were sinners, because we were enemies. There was nothing we can do. He didn't make us alive apart from Christ. He made us alive with Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means that the resurrection of Christ was the means by which God raised us up from spiritual death. And the mercy and the love of God was the motive. The resurrection is the means Mercy and love were the motive. In verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. Christ was not only raised, he actually exited the tomb. You've seen the movie, right? He exited the tomb. He appeared to his disciples. His resurrection wasn't just metaphorical. Every now and then you'll run across someone who says, well, the, the resurrection of Christ, of course, was simply metaphorical. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible said he, he burst forth, as we sang this morning, gloriously from the tomb. It was literal. It was historical. In the latter part of verse 6, then, Paul says that God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the, in the previous chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul had written that he, that is God, raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and seated us, or seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So by saying that God, raised, uh, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul wants us to understand that God has enthroned us with Christ. You say, well, that's an overstatement. Really? Let me, just re let me just review that, okay? He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly places. I think that's the right hand of God. Is that, do you understand it that way? In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So Paul says he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He's enthroned us. And he wants us to know that that Jesus' ascension and his glorification in the presence of God gives us assurance then that, that we too will one day experience the resurrection from the dead and our glorification in his presence. He says you were already there positionally and one day you will be there experientially. In other, in other words, we hope, not just wishfully, but we hope confidently for heaven. Confidently. To the Colossian believers, Paul wrote, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, when Christ died, you died with him. He, he died your death, and as he died, you died with him. Died to sin, died to the power of the enemy. And, and he has enclosed you in himself. He has wrapped you in his righteousness. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also might possibly appear with him in glory. Is that what it says? And you will, you will appear with him in glory. You see, none of what God did in making us alive with Christ, raising us up with him and seating us with him in the heavenly places had anything to do with what we could do or did do. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do much. Have you noticed that? A dead person cannot think thoughts. A dead person can't think even their way into heaven. They're just dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were weak, unable to save ourselves. We were sinners in rebellion against God. We were enemies of God. We were hostile toward him. But God, but God demonstrated his great mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness. Listen now, as an act of his own initiative. Now understand There was nothing you could do to earn your salvation. You were just laying there dead. And in your dead state, God decided to make you alive. And the means by which he did that was the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did he do it? Verse seven says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
God was wanting to put his kindness and his grace on display. God's, this is God's publicity program. It's his marketing strategy, if you will, <laughs> for the whole of history to put on display for everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, men, women, angels, demons, how truly good and how kind he is because of what Christ Jesus has done. So is salvation by works or is it by faith? It's neither. Let's keep following where Paul is leading. You're confused now, aren't you? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 4, by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. First of all, by grace. You're saved by grace. What is God's grace? It's his free, undeserved, unmerited favor. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. God gave it freely by his own initiative in Christ. You didn't ask for it, you didn't deserve it, you didn't think it up, you couldn't have strategized it, you couldn't have begged for it. It was God's own initiative. By grace, you have been saved. Paul is writing to believers and he is speaking in the past tense. Just before Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, that is just before he died, he said, it is finished. And the work of salvation had been a, has been accomplished then by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that you have been saved by the grace of God from the penalty of your sin. And you are being saved from the power of sin and one day you will be saved forever from the very presence of sin. Isn't that good news? I'm gonna repeat what I said last week. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. By grace you've been saved and then through faith, through faith. Notice the prepositions, by grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. We're not saved by faith, we are saved by grace. And, and, and it's God's grace. The salvation that that God has accomplished for you by his grace is appropriated and it is received through faith. Well, what's faith? Faith is not something you do. Faith is not something you do. Faith is, is simply a trustful response to what God has already accomplished for you. You know, we often encourage people who are wanting to put their trust in Christ to pray a prayer. And in that prayer, we, we suggest that they confess their sins, that they acknowledge their need for a savior, that they ask Christ to come into their lives. And we can kind of get the idea that, that in order to 
to be saved, we have to pray a prayer. And the Bible never says that. It's faith. God's grace through faith. It's not the prayer that results in your salvation. Again, it's by grace, through faith, on the basis of what? The sacrifice of Christ, what God already did for you. So that the prayer is simply an outward, verbal affirmation of an inward response to God. In other words, before you prayed the prayer, you were already in a place of faith. If you weren't, the prayer was empty. And oftentimes when I'm praying for people that don't know Christ, that they would come to know him, and that they would receive salvation in his name, I will pray, Lord, would you grant them the gift of faith that leads to life? Faith isn't joining a church, although it should lead to that. Faith is not agreeing intellectually with the church's set of doctrines, important as that may otherwise be. And neither is, is faith something that you and I can produce. It's not something we can self-generate. Faith that results in being made right with God is itself a gift from God. It's all of his faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, the gospel is preached. God does something in your heart. You respond in faith. John 6, 28 and 29, disciples were asking Jesus, Jesus, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You should memorize that. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what God asks of you. It's what he intends for you. See, nothing, I just want, am I getting redundant here? I hope I am. Nothing having to do with our salvation is of our own doing, none of it. It is all, from first to last, a gift from God. Paul adds that salvation isn't a result of works so that no one can boast. In other words, no one can say, man, I'm a little more spiritual than you are. I must be a little more saved than you are. Right? Or, you know, God, God saved me because, boy, you know, he needed some great people in the kingdom. You ever hear somebody say about someone else, boy, they'd make a great Christian? You ever hear that? That person make a great Christian. And you usually say something like that because you're talking about a person that's really nice, really moral, and, and you know, and, and, and let's face it, there are pagans who are nicer people than you. Right? I mean, I know that's true with regard to me. I, I know a lot of pagans that are much nicer people than me, who just seem to have a better moral compass, frankly speaking. But your morality will never save you. In Romans 3, 21 to 25, Paul wrote this to the believers in that city of Rome. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets 
long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. And yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Paul goes on in the first part of verse 10. He says, we are his workmanship. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, not not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not by works so that no one can boast. And then in verse 10 he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now you're confused again, right? created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which, which is the word from which we get our word poem. And, it, and, and in its larger application, it means a work of art, a masterpiece. And so some paraphrases of this will say we are his masterpiece. In fact, I think the, the New Jerusalem Bible, which is not a paraphrase, but a translation says we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. Remember in Philippians 1, 6, Paul wrote, for, we, uh, for I, he says, am confident, speaking to the, the believers in Philippi, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And again, who's doing the perfecting? Is it you? Who is it? It's God, right? From first to last, our salvation is his work. He saved us from the penalty of our sin. He's saving us from the power of, of sin, which we, we use that word sometimes sanctification. That he's making us like Christ. He's making us holy inside and out. And someday we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That he, but he who began that work is the one that perfects it. And you go, what? Well, kind of leaves me out of the picture. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit leaves us out. Because he's perfecting something in us. He's changing us from the inside out. And a lot of times when we're struggling with this question of am I saved, we're dealing with the outside in attitude. But God is changing us from the inside out. He says we are created in Christ Jesus to, good, to do good works. That word created is the word bara, and it means a special creation. A special creation creation of God. It's on the par with his act of creating the, the universe. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by our works. We are saved for works. We're saved for works. Do you understand this morning that that God saved you so that you could live a life 
that he had in mind for you to live. And the surprising thing that we discover after all of our rebellion, after all of our wrangling with God, is that, is that as he starts doing that work in us, we go, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the life I've always wanted to live. This is who I am. Someone says when, when you die spiritually with Christ and he makes you alive, you become more who you are than you ever, ever could have been before. James, the brother of Jesus, said, faith by itself, if it doesn't have any works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, the works aren't the, the, the works that save you. He's talking about the evidence. He's talking about the outcome. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life and transforms you from the inside out, there are some things that he has in mind for you to do, but you only discover them when you're in that process. Which God prepared beforehand, verse 10. God prepared it beforehand. God had a person in mind. I think I shared with you last week about that little old lady when I was a youth pastor way back in the day. I had black hair back then. It's amazing. Long black hair. A little old lady, after I preached what was probably a very terrible sermon, came up to me and said, Pastor Jim, my prayer for you is that you will become as beautiful a person as you were when God first thought of you. See, and that's, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He, he knew you beforehand. He knew you before you were born. You were conceived in his mind and his heart. And he had a life that he intended for you to live and a purpose for you to fulfill. And he knew it all ahead of time and he prepared it for you that you should walk in them. He began with our walk, our dead walk. And he ends with our live walk, the purpose for which Christ saved you. Listen, there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. When you screw up, God isn't surprised. When you screw up, his sin covers that mess up. Why? Because he saw it all before he went to the cross. And as Christ hung on the cross, every sin you would ever commit, you hadn't even been born yet when Christ went to the cross, and he bore all of your sins. All of your sins for all of your life were there, and he bore them in his own body on the cross. By grace you are saved. Through faith. And even the faith itself is not something you generate. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. So that neither you nor I nor anyone else can boast. From first to last, our salvation is a work of God by his spirit because of the blood of Christ. Today, God invites you to have your sins forgiven. God invites you to discover discover the purpose for which he created you. And the beginning of that is simple faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray today for those who are hearing this message who don't know you yet, but are being drawn, who, who know that they're outside of your plan and purpose for their life, who know that they're dead in their trespasses and sins, who know that they need a savior. And I pray today that you might grant to them that gift of faith that leads to life by your grace. Open the door of their hearts. Open the door of your kingdom and transfer their citizenship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.